Father God, thank you so much for the baptisms this morning. Thank you that you are changing lives and growing people, that you are saving people, that they are going to have their eternities drastically changed because you've opened their hearts and their minds. Thank you, Father, for that. Lord God, thank you for the folks who are sitting here this morning, and I pray that all of us would have our hearts and minds open, ready for you to speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord God, that I would have a clear head and a sharp mind as I bring your word to this church. In Christ's name, amen. We often forget that pastors are a gift from God. And I want you to follow along as I read from Ephesians chapter 4 just to help us understand that pastors are given to us, to the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, that's or the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood and womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Here in this passage, we find that pastors are definitely elders, are gifts to the church to help them grow and mature. And one of the most special parts of that gifting that God has given is a pastor's heart pastor's heart, a heart that moves these men to love and care for the flock God has given them in ways that most can never understand. In our study of James's letter to his dispersed flock, we have seen that pastoral heart, haven't we? James is separated from many of his flock because they have been run out of Jerusalem due to persecution. They are spread throughout the region, alone, living in pagan cities with little pastoral guidance. Many of them are struggling in trials, poor, destitute, being tempted to compromise. And so James writes his dispersed flock a pastoral letter because he loves them. He is concerned they will be led astray without a shepherd and that they will struggle living out their faith in the pagan cities they have fled to. His heart is going out to them saying, I love you. I miss you. And sometimes pastors, when we speak to folks about life and their beliefs and behavior and stuff like that, uh, people often don't respond to that well. They don't. Because as we'll find out here in a little bit, we don't like to be challenged, do we? But that didn't stop James. This letter is so applicable to our lives today because we also live in a pagan society that strives every day to envelop us into their worldview. And the practical guidelines that James is pleading with his flock giving his flock to pay attention to is invaluable to us because it helps us know how we need to behave in our pagan culture. We need guidance 
from God's Word on how to live in this culture that wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ, wants nothing to do with His body, the church, wants nothing to do with how God designed the world to be. And God has placed us in this world and said, now behave in this way. And James, is, James wants his flock to know that even though they are in difficult times. And we've just started this series. We've not even made it out of chapter 1 yet. So far we've seen James address the difficult trials they are going through. And he helps them see that those trials are gifts from God. Designed to grow them spiritually so they should res- and so that they should respond to them with joy. They are not to enjoy the trial in and of itself. We're not saying that we, like, give me more pain, give me more grief. But they are to have joy in the fact that their trials, they know, are designed by God to grow them into maturity. Grow their faith into maturity. Help them become more Christ-like, even though that process is difficult. And then we were very encouraged last week to find out God knows how difficult it will be to know how to respond to His trials. He knows we are going to struggle with that. He knows we're going to look at our trials and go, have joy? He understands that. And so He says, I want you to know something. I have the wisdom you need to make it through those trials in a way that you should in a way that will grow your faith, in a way that will make you more Christ-like. And he says, all you have to do is ask me for that wisdom, and I will give it to you. He has not asked us to do something without providing something to help us do it. Amen? And where do we find that wisdom? In God's Word. We will never have the wisdom we need to live through the trials in a way that we consider them joy, without being in God's Word and understanding what God's Word says. And God says, you want to, for, to me to help you through these trials, to help you respond in the right way? Then get in my Word, and I will give you wisdom through prayer in my Word to go through these trials in a way that not only grows you, but brings me glory. And we came to understand that biblical wisdom is this. Biblical wisdom is knowledge turned to action through moral choices guided by biblical principles. That's what biblical wisdom is. Knowledge that doesn't just stay in our heads, but is turned to action because as we uh, encounter moral choices in trials, moral choices in our our world, that the the Word of God that is within our hearts or within our minds that is at our fingertips, that it will guide and direct our actions into something that will grow us and bring glory to God. With this in mind, let's read our text for this morning. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. You may be seated. We already know that the trials God brings into our lives are very beneficial to our lives here on earth when we rightly respond to them. We've already seen that they test the genuineness of our faith, grow us stronger in our faith, develop a steadfast faith, mature our faith, and help us to become more like our Savior Jesus Christ. Those are the benefits, earthly benefits of trials. Think about that. Are those great benefits for trials? I mean, trials hurt. Trials are difficult. But we know there are benefits that will greatly change our lives. These benefits, these earthly benefits by themselves should cause us to see our trials as being very worthwhile. But James also reveals that when we respond to our trials correctly, they bring an amazing eternal reward. A reward that lasts after this earth. And we're going to consider that eternal reward. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He doesn't walk away. He responds well. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This word blessed can be translated as happy and carries the idea of a deep inner joy and satisfaction. Why is the Christ follower deeply happy when they have remained steadfast in their faith during trials? Because they will receive this eternal crown of life. The word for crown here refers to a crown that was rewarded to an athlete when they had withstood the test of competition. They had persevered through the competition and come out on top over everybody else. And what is reward for a Christ follower who has withstood the test of trials? This crown of life, what is that? It's eternal life with God Himself in heaven. Is that a worthwhile eternal reward? When you endure trials in the appropriate way, it proves that your faith is genuine. And if your faith is genuine, you and I have inherited eternal life already. And that will be finally realized when we take our last breath here and see Christ face to face, and that is the crown of life. We have life in Christ right now. We don't have to wish for it. We don't have to hope we get it. We have it right now. And that is worth the trials. That is why trials are so important, because trials test the genuineness of our faith. Trials test whether we're truly in Christ. And when we respond the right way, when we grow in that, right, in that response and how we respond, when we mature in how we respond, then that brings comfort and that brings assurance of our salvation that we are going to have the crown of life and spend eternity with Him. Peter also writes about how perseverance through trials proves one faith is genuine and results in eternal reward. Look at what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, 
If necessary, you have been grieved. What does grieve mean? Walk in the park? No, this is tough. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says when Jesus Christ comes back and our faith has been proven through trials as, te- as being tested and being genuine, then there is going to, or we will have praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ comes back. There is no trial that should remove that joy from us. The believer who perseveres under trial and receives honor and glory is the believer who never abandons their confident trust in God. I like how John MacArthur put it here. A genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ. But he is a person who demonstrates true faith by an ongoing love for God that cannot be damaged, much less destroyed by troubles and afflictions, no matter how severe or long-lasting. A genuine Christian is someone who can never walk away from God's love, no matter what trial they're going through. What practical insight and encouragement we find in, the first, in, in verse 12 of James's letter. We now know there are earthly and heavenly benefits to every trial that enters our lives, and God has offered to supply all the wisdom we need to receive those benefits. But now we come to verse 13. And it seems to be a very abrupt change of topic with little connection between the verses. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Seems like there's a very abrupt change here. We're talking about trials and the blessings of trials, and all of a sudden he just switches. It seems like in midstream and midthought to talking about temptations. But as we've seen throughout James so far, even though we're very early in it, that there are words that bring connection. And we have that same idea here between verses 12 and 13. We see the connection very easily in the King James Version. So take a look at this. Same verses, King James Version. Blessed is the man that endureth what? Temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised them that love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, all the words that are underlined are the exact same Greek word. The Greek word for temptation provides the connection between the old topic of trials and the new topic of temptation. If you've been around very long, we know that language is fluid and often changes very much within societies and culture, true? Things that we would say and speak years ago, we never hear anymore. We talked about that a week ago or so when we talked about the idea of wisdom. Wisdom used to be a big topic. People wanted to grow in wisdom and talk about wisdom. And most of the time, most of it in my life, that's a word that we very rarely use now at all. It has fallen out of not necessarily favor, but just out of use. This is very obvious now within our culture in in very practical ways. For example, pronouns are being redefined because gender is no longer thought of as just him or her. 
Now, now we have plural pronouns being used in the singular to identify people. That's a language change, and that is even starting to come out in some dictionaries. As time passes, word meanings change or are added to or subtracted from. And this word temptation had a broader meaning when the King James was written. It was a, a broader meaning that people understood. Readers in that day would have understood temptation also carried the meaning of trial. That broad definition is not understood today in today's English. It's just not understood. We always look at temptation as being a singular thing. It's a much more narrow definition of the word. So modern translations have made sure that the reader understands the idea of trial is meant in verse 12 and not the idea of temptation because we don't necessarily think of it in the way that they did back when the King James was written. By the way, all translations make these choices in how to help the English reader understand it. In fact, the King James, this same Greek word is used throughout the New Testament, even though it doesn't do it here, uses the word trial in certain passages for that same Greek word. Because the translators are making a choice to help us do what? Understand the text. All modern translations use trial for verse 12 and temptation for verse 13. And that is the connection point. And this connection is important not only for the idea of the flow in the letter, but because James wants his dispersed flock and eventually all Christ followers to understand, we will all have trials and we will all have temptations. And it is often difficult to distinguish between a trial and a temptation. It's hard to distinguish between what is a trial and what is a temptation. We already know that a, what a trial is. A trial is a test God brings into our lives to prove the genuineness of our faith and to grow and mature us in our faith. We, we understand what a trial is. But what is a temptation? Remember, it's the same Greek word. What, what is a temptation? What sets it apart from a trial? A temptation can be summed up this way. Temptation is an enticement to sin and evil. A temptation is an enticement to sin and evil. Just because we are saved doesn't mean we will not be tempted to choose to walk in, in sin and evil. And Paul makes this very clear. Turn with me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Listen to what Paul writes. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness which is idolatry who's he talking to here christians and what's he telling them to put away these things which means they're going to have what in their life the temptation for these things he goes on on account of the, these the wrath of god is coming in these you too once walked when you were living in them but now you must put them all away anger listen, listen to this list Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You know what he's saying? This is just a partial list of all the things we're going to be tempted with every day of our lives. I would bet that many of you were tempted to sin one of these sins this week. Because we, this is where we live. This is what we deal with when we live in a sin-cursed world with sinful fleshly bodies. 
Paul writes this passage in a way that says you must continually put off these sins. It's an ongoing fight because we will be tempted to live in the old self because sin is still part of who we are until the day we see Jesus Christ face to face. God does not hide the fact that we are going to struggle in temptations to sin. And it's never going to stop. You're never going to get to a place where it's going to end. And we need to stop looking for the day when it just gets easier. Because once we grow then what does God reveal through trials? Areas that we need to grow more. It never ends. And we understand the the grievousness of that. We understand the difficulty of that. But we also understand what? The rewards. That's why he starts with that. So that we don't grow weary. Even though we have been saved from the eternal consequences of sin, we still deal, deal with sin every day temptations just like trials come in all shapes and sizes we will often find temptations looking us right in the face during a trial god has placed in our lives to grow us and to test our faith during that trial we will often find our sinful flesh the sinfulness that resides within us rearing its ugly head tempting us to question god's motive for the trial We don't look at the trial as something that God has brought into our life to grow us. We look at the trial as something that God put in our lives, and we aren't sure He was right about doing that. We begin to doubt God's faithfulness to bring us through the trial. We begin to doubt God's goodness. How could a good God bring this horrible thing into my life? We begin to doubt His love because a loving God would not put me through this. And then there is Satan who rules the world we live in, And he and his demons come alongside of us and use the world and its pleasures to feed that evil enticement. The world says it's not fair. The world says what God wants is outdated and narrow-minded. The world says do whatever you can to escape the difficulties of the trial any way you can instead of facing them with a steadfast heart knowing that God is going to grow you and there are rewards attached to it. Leave the family that ties you down. Use hobbies or drugs or alcohol or social media or any number of other things to numb the pain or grief of the trial instead of looking it in the face and facing it in a steadfast manner knowing that God is growing you. Temptations are not always tied to our trials even though we will more often than not encounter them in our trials. The sin that indwells us along with the sinful world we live in will often take the good gifts the good desires that God has given us and entice us, tempt us to use them in evil ways that God never intended. God, the God-given desire to work and earn a living becomes an evil when work becomes where you find life, meaning, and satisfaction. Is it a good desire for us to work with our hands to provide for our families? to take care of the material things. That is a God-given desire until it becomes something that replaces God and we find our self-satisfaction in that work instead of God Himself. The God-given desire to have material things and money can be used by our sinfulness and Satan and be turned into greed when we just never find ourselves having enough. The God-given desire for intimacy is turned on its head when it is taken out of the marriage relationship and turned into pornography, adultery, fornication, and homosexuality. Temptations come in all shapes and sizes. 
No one will escape them. No one is safe from them, and they will get in the way of growth that God intends for us through the trials that He brings into our lives. And we need to just lay this out, put it on the table, and understand that's life. How many of you here enjoy the fact that this is just life? A lot of times we just want to stick our head in the ground and just not worry about it, don't we? But God doesn't allow us to do that. He puts it right out on the table. He says, you need to know what life is like before you can live it in the way that I want you to. He doesn't want us to be blind. Now that we know what temptations are, why does James want his dispersed flock to think about temptations right after writing about trials? Why does he connect the two? Because he wants them to be better prepared to identify and deal with the temptations he knows they are going to face in their trials. Remember, they're suffering great trials, and he wants them to know that even in this trial, there's going to be some added difficulty because you are going to be tempted to respond to this trial in the wrong way, and I want to help you understand how to identify when that begins. They will be tempted to think God has abandoned them. They will be tempted to alleviate their poverty in ways that God never intended them to. They will be be tempted to compromise in the pagan cultures that they were thrown into. And they will be tempted, and we can make the list go on and on and on. And so James presents them with some temptation insights designed to help his dispersed flock identify temptation and deal with it. And these insights are also very practical and very applicable to our lives because every day we are going to be fighting against the temptations that, that our sinful desires in our hearts bring forward. And the first temptation insight that James presents is God is never the source of your temptation. If you're taking notes, circle the word never. Do you grasp what that is saying? God is never the source of your temptation. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say, remember we said that there are 60 imperatives in this book? This is one of them. Let no one say, James says, that what I'm about to write is wrong, it is in stone, it is a truth, it will never go away. So if you have a command that says, let no one say, okay, that God is the source of my temptation, and we do say that God in some way, maybe in a background way, maybe we won't say it out loud, but it's in the back of our mind. He says, let no one say, and we actually allow that thought to enter our minds. We just sinned. We just call God a liar because he says, I can never be the source of your temptation, period. What is the command? When you are tempted, never say God is the one tempting you. Never think it, never say it, never hint it under your breath that God is the source of your temptation. Let that settle into your minds because that is really, really difficult. James bases this principle on the character of God. Look at the last part of verse 13. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It is impossible for God to tempt others because of who He is. 
Is it possible for God to tempt others to evil because God himself is incapable of being influenced by evil? He is, what we would say, insusceptible to evil. God cannot be tempted or influenced by evil on any level. If God could be tempted us to evil, then he would have to delight in evil, which is impossible for God to do because he cannot be influenced by evil. God is good and doesn't delight in evil. And we need to understand what that means. God is good. What does it mean that God is good? Is it just, does it mean that he just does good? Or does it mean this is part of who he is? God is good like God is love. God cannot do anything that is not good. Everything that happens in your life that God is a sovereign over is what? Say it. Good. Period. Everything. Every situation you encounter is good because God is good and has allowed it into your life. God doesn't just do good. He is good. It's his state of being. And we have that a number of times in the scriptures. Psalm 107.1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is what? He, does it say he does good or he is good? He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 119.68, God, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. You are what? You are good. Psalm 135.3, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing to his name for it is pleasant. God would have to become something he is not to delight in evil. Therefore, he can't tempt anyone with evil. James makes it clear up front that when Christ followers experience trials and are tempted to sin or respond to the trial in sin, a place we will all find ourselves at some time, we can never say that God did it or it is God's fault. God is never the source of your temptation. God is never the source of my temptation. And if God cannot be the source of our temptations, then we have to ask the honest question, what is the source of our temptation? And none of you are going to like this. Because James is very upfront. He says, do not say in any manner or any way that God tempts you. Black and white. Very simple. He's going to tell us in the very same black and white, simple way what the source of our temptation is in verse 14. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Does that shake you to your core? You are always the source of your temptation. Did you get that? You are always the source of your temptation. Grasp what that means. We already know God cannot tempt us, but here we come to understand that we cannot blame our temptation to sin, our enticement to do evil. We cannot blame it on Satan, our situation. We cannot blame it on a family member, on a co-worker, or a neighbor. 
We cannot blame our temptation to sin on the weather, on the traffic, on our boss, on the lack of time. We cannot blame our temptation to sin on anything external to us because it comes from where? Us, inside. Every temptation you encounter is because of you. You can never point somebody else or something else made me do it. Can't happen. Let that settle. Every one of us here this morning knows how easy it is for us to blame someone else or something else for our failure to obey God, true? How many times have we been faced with a trial and we respond the wrong way? It can be small like the trial of being stuck in traffic on 26 and all lanes are backed up for miles and you have an appointment to make. And you get mad and your hearts begin to seethe. And you say, God, don't you know what? I have to make it to this appointment. Why did you let this happen? Oh. Where are we beginning? Where are we, where are we encroaching? Our anger is being directed at God for something He put into our lives. And so we're basically saying that our temptation to get angry, our temptation to stomp our feet, our temptation to throw a temper tantrum is whose fault? We are saying it's God's. It's not. It's ours because we are not taking this trial and responding to it in a way that brings glory and honor to God and grows our faith and grows our what? Patience. That's tough. You are always the source of your temptations. It's been that way since the day of Adam and Eve. We like to blame our failing to respond well to trials on somebody else. Everybody turn to Genesis chapter 3. And if you want to know where that's at, that's all the way back. First book of the Bible, so it's easy to find. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Let's set the stage just for a minute here. Adam and Eve were perfect. They had the perfect life, perfect work, perfect relationship with God, perfect marriage, perfect everything. And then they were tempted to sin. Where did that temptation come from? We'll look at that here in just a minute from within inside of them. And they sinned and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God told them not to. And so God's coming down. He's walking in the garden. And look at starting in verse 7. So they ate, and then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, this is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? How soon after their disobedience, how soon after their failure to respond to the trial correctly that God put before them, did they start pointing their fingers at other people and blaming others for their response? Look at what Adam says. And the man, Adam, said, The woman whom you gave with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. A lot of times we think that he's blaming the woman, but he's not. Who's he blaming? Can you imagine standing before God and saying, it's your fault that I disobeyed you? That's what Adam does. 
You see, we don't like to be blamed for the temptations that we fall to, do we? We don't want to take responsibility for them. And it goes on. The man said, The woman whom you gave with me gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. How quickly does it take us to want to point the finger at somebody else for our failing to deal with temptations the right way? For our failure to deal with trials the right way. We always want to blame somebody else. James eliminates this blame game. The source of all of our temptations is ourself. We cannot blame anybody else. And James is not saying that all of our desires are evil or sinful. So what makes a desire evil? A desire is evil if it is contrary to God's law and God's will. A desire is evil if it is contrary to God's law and God's will. Has He given us all kinds of desires that are good in our lives? Absolutely. If He didn't give us the desire to eat, some of us might be happy. Okay, but how many of us would be around if we did not have the desire to eat? Did God give us the desire to procreate? Yes. If we didn't have the desire to procreate, we wouldn't be here. We would have died out as a species a long time ago. All of our desires are not evil, but we have to understand that all of our desires have the potential to be evil because we have the sinful flesh and we live in a sin-cursed world, and it has been that way ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. All of our desires have a potential to be turned into something that is evil when we allow them to be outside of how God designed the world to be. Listen to the warning God gives Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? See, Cain is mad because he was offering sacrifices in a way that God did not accept his sacrifice. He accepted his brother Abel's, but he didn't accept Cain's. And so who is Cain mad at? God. Cain is mad at Abel. Whose fault? was it that he did not offer a sacrifice in the right way? Cain. And so God is warning him here before, before he kills Abel. He says, if you do well, you will be, won't you be accepted just like your brother? And if you do not do well, sin is what? Crouching at the door. Is sin still crouching at each of our doors? Just waiting for us to fall to the temptations, to have our desires that have been adulterated and turned to evil desires. Sin is crouching at our door, and we and have to be aware of that. James wants his dispersed flock to know that. It is always there. It is a war. It's never going to go away, and we cannot let our guards down. Let me give you an easy example. The desire to do a task well. Is that a good desire? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I am completely enamored by my wife because she desires to do every task well. But all of us, including my wife, when we succumb to the desire of our sinful flesh to take credit for doing a task well, instead of acknowledging it was God who created the initial desire to do the task well and provided everything that we need to do that task well, then God, the God-given desire becomes an evil desire. 
If we become prideful because, look at me, I accomplished all of this stuff. My life is where it's at because I had the discipline to do this. My life is not like their life, the one who's laying in the gutter, because they didn't do what I did. I completed the task to make a good life. He or she did not. We can easily become critical like that, right? But who gave us the ability to desire to do the task? God did. Who provided the personality for us to do the task? God did. Who provided the way or the the opportunity to do that task well? God did. Everything that we did to to do that task, who provided? God did. It has nothing to do with us. There is no time when we are exempt from the possibility of our God-given, God-honoring desires becoming evil. Every day we will battle these temptations. Every day we will be tempted to respond to whatever trial we are in in an evil manner because our sinful selves desire to view our trials as inconveniences, as being unfair, as being unnecessary, as being something we want to run and hide from. And it will be an everyday battle to fight against those desires and to see our trials from God's perspective as being gifts to us. It's difficult. It's difficult. And what are our chances of growing and keeping control of our desires? What are the chances of us doing that if we are by ourselves? Can't. What has God provided for us to help us as we grow and mature in this? Right here, this body. These people. To walk alongside to hold accountable, to love even when we make the wrong choices and fall to the temptation and come by and tell us, hey, God's forgiven you, let me help you. Let's pick up, let's move on, let's move forward. You see, God's provided everything we need to handle these trials in our everyday life. James is clear, he leaves no room for debate. You and I are always the source of our temptations. You and I are always the source of our temptations. We can never blame God for tempting us or putting us in a position where we are tempted. So let's take a minute to apply these temptations, these insights to our lives. Let's look into the mirror. Remember, James is writing to his flock about how to behave as Christ followers in a pagan culture. He encourages them by teaching their trials are part of God's plan for their lives so their faith will mature and He will be glorified. And then he turns their focus to the fact that they will also find themselves tempted to blaming God for the temptations they will experience during the trials He has given them. They will be tempted to say that He is the source of their temptation, but He clearly refutes this notion by teaching God cannot tempt us and the sole source of our temptation is our evil desires. So now, looking in the mirror, let's look at our behavior. How often do you blame God for the the temptations in your life? Even inadvertently. Maybe it's just in the back of your mind or that heavy, settled heart that you really don't want to go before God because you kind of blame Him for the situation that you're in. You know, that's blaming God for the temptation that is in your life, for the struggles that are in your life? Do you blame God? If you do, if you find that that's a normal part of your life, 
then what do you need to do now? You see, we know that that cannot happen. That's a categorical truth. You can never, ever, in any way, even consider the thought that God is the one that is tempting you. And Christ followers who have truly been saved by faith in Jesus Christ will grow in their ability to do that. And what does God use to grow those things? Trials. <laughs> Trials where we have to look at Him and say, Lord God, I know this is the right thing. This is good for me. I know that it's hard. And Lord God, I'm grieving. Lord God, it hurts. Lord God, I need strength. Lord God, I don't know where to go. But Lord God, I know this is good for me. Help me walk this. Or do we just not want to come to Him? Because we're just mad. And so... What are you going to do about it? That's a hard look in the mirror, isn't it? Consider this. Do you blame your succumbing to the temptations during your trials on someone else or something else? Or do you take total responsibility for it? Every time you succumb to a temptation, do you look in the mirror and say, this was my fault? I cannot point to my co-worker when I get mad and angry and blow up and say it was their fault. If they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. The issue is what? I look in the mirror and say, whose fault is it that I got angry in the wrong and inappropriate way? It's my fault. It's my fault. When I hold a grudge or, an unfor- or I'm not forgiving, whose fault is that? mine that temptation to stay there is mine it's in my heart it's in my lap if you you find it easy to point to someone or something else when you succumb to temptations you can also go to god and do what ask for forgiveness and say lord god i am looking at this the wrong way i take responsibility and you know what happens when you take responsibility for failing in the temptations or falling to the temptations when you take responsibility guess what you have a tendency to grow quicker because you are looking in the mirror and saying, it is my fault and you're not giving excuses for why you did it. And how many times do we really want to look in the mirror and say, it's my fault? We don't, do we? When you fail in a temptation, we need to look in the mirror and say what? It is my fault. We're going to stop here this morning and continue on with looking at temptations next week because of the baptismal service earlier. But as you leave today, I'd like you to consider something. Sit down and just reflect on your life sometime. Pray first that God would open your eyes and your heart and just kind of take an overview of your life. Is there anything in your life now or in the recent past that you've actually maybe unknowingly blamed God for a temptation. Get right with God at that, at that point in time. And then take responsibility for it. Bow your heads, please. Father, it is difficult, Lord God, to accept so much responsibility for our failing to handle temptations in the right way. And Father, I ask and pray for everyone sitting here this morning that you would 
Give us the wisdom through your word and through prayer to grow in handling temptations in the right way and just honestly taking our responsibility that we have for them. And Father, as we take responsibility, help grow us so that we respond to the world, we respond to our culture, we respond to our neighbors and to our co-workers and to our uh, schoolmates in a way that they look at us and go, you respond so differently than what I do when you're tempted. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen us to do that so we become better lights for you. Father, we ask and pray that we would never allow in any way the thought that you are the one that is tempting us. And Father, we thank you that we, can, that we serve a God that cannot tempt and who cannot be tempted himself. Thank you for that confidence. Thank you that we can always come to you knowing that you love us, that you've been up front with us about trials and temptations, that you've prepared our hearts and our minds to live in this world that doesn't want us here. And Father, help us to be steadfast, enduring, strong Christ followers so that when you call us home, we understand that we will have the crown of life and that we, will have, that we have eternal life and have had eternal life since we ask Jesus to be our Savior in Christ's name. Amen.